0: This is a Radioplasma special feature. As part of the celebrations of National Immigrant Heritage Month in Holyoke, the Wisteria Hearst Museum hosted the lecture Immigrants
1: Incorporation and Life Chances in Holyoke, an overview of immigration from Europe
0: and Canada and migration from Puerto Rico to Holyoke. This lecture was presented by Professor Ginera Candelario. Already know something about the history of Holyoke and its general outlines? Yes, so I'll probably move as quickly as the PowerPoint will allow me because it is having a little bit of a glitch through that part. Um, But my general intention then would be to give you an overview and in some ways to address a very common um, uh, response when folks are thinking about what is it that characterizes or makes so different the experience, and in particular the incorporation experience, right, um, of immigrants in the United States in the more current moment? Um, specifically, what I mean about the glitch, especially in the last say, 10 to 20 years, versus the story that we receive as a kind of leitmotif of the American dream and and incorporation into U.S. society, right? The kind of pull-yourselves-up-by-the-bootstrap story. Um, And it's a story that often features hardship, right? That, uh, first of all, one of the core stories is it's a nation of immigrants, which is somewhat problematic because it leaves out the fact that Uh, 10 million people came to the Americas, and half a million people specifically came to what becomes the United States from Africa, not as immigrants, but as bonded uh, enslaved laborers, right? So that wasn't a voluntary immigration or emigration at all. That was um, the transformation of a population of people from persons to property, right? Completely against their will, and then also the production of capitalism based on that extracted, forcibly extracted labor, not only of their own, but of their project, right? Descendants into 300 years of the establishment of the world. So that's a pretty straightforward fact. Um, and in fact, a book that I recommend if you want to uh, read something that was recently uh, published is called The Half Has Never Been Told. And it's a very good account of exactly um, how central a role enslaved labor, bonded labor, and the the transformation of people into property uh, played in the production of wealth in the United States, right? And of of industrialization and capitalism especially. So that's a wonderful book that I recommend highly. The other part, right, that's left out is the presence of uh, several million Native American populations. Um, Several hundred, in fact, Native American nations just in North America and, and Central and South America Um, who uh, were not immigrants, right? May have been somewhat migratory in some cases, but were native peoples, First Nations, we often say. Um, So those folks are not immigrants and they're left out of the story. Um, And also, as happens with African Americans, the kind of violence that they were and continue to be subjected to, right? As colonial subjects inside the United States. Um, 2,200, in fact, colonial nations within the US borders. Right, so those folks, we can't characterize as immigrants or part of this immigrant story. All right, with that caveat, then we move on to the, the large, larger part of the population, that other 90% or so, uh, 85% or so, 70%, uh, which is the immigrant story. And a lot of that story has to do with hardship, right? That most folks left some kind of hardship situation, um, either as Puritans who were fleeing religious persecution, for example, or as um, perhaps Ireland who were fleeing famine were told the story of the famine, without, by the way, really discussing the political context in which that famine occurred. It's another sort of problem, but we'll save that for another time. Um, or that they were folks who were seeking economic opportunity, because for whatever reason, something wasn't working right in their home country, and they came to the United States with the expectation that uh, a little bit of effort would improve not only their lives, but more importantly, the lives of their children and grandchildren, right? That's kind of the basic contour of the story. Um, And we have a lot of uh, reason to believe that there's something fairly valid about that story, because if you look across generations, we do see that there is an improvement in the circumstances, and this is not cooperating, of the descendants. No, it's just, it's taking a long time to actually go along. The um, descendants of the European immigrants did in fact improve, for the most part, their circumstances over time. It's just gonna take a long time. Uh, Part of that story, certainly does feature polio. because a sort of quintessentially uh, American, and when I say American, I'm going to mean the U.S., although those of us who are Latin Americanists always insist <laughs> that America includes the rest of the countries in the hemisphere, the other two dozen or so countries of the Americas, but we'll, we'll stick to received terms for a moment. Um, quintessential U.S. story of industrialization and industrialized capitalism and upward social mobility for if not necessarily the immigrant generation, but definitely their children and grandchildren. Right? So a key word, um, a key moment about terms. In sociology, the first generation is the immigrant generation, okay? so the first arrival. This is because the assumption was for many years that folks who came to the United States came with the intention of becoming Americans. Becoming Americans in terms of their incorporation into U.S. culture and society, but also in terms of their embracing of U.S. citizenship. Uh, This was largely true for the second, although not necessarily for the first part of that expectation. Why? Because barriers to citizenship, in fact, were very low in the United States throughout the 19th century. Um, it's not really until the early 20th century that you begin to see a systematic limitation to access to citizenship in the United States. It's not until just about World War I or two that you begin to see border controls of the notion of borders that need to be policed. And even that, by the way, was largely around concerns about the movement of materials, not people, of products of consumer goods, especially alcohol, mm-hmm. um, and especially during prohibition. Okay. Uh, So yes, citizenship was fairly easy to access in the 19th century. So the first generation is the first generation American. The question of accessing American cultural standing as a bona fide American, somewhat uneven. We'll come back to that. Uh, The second generation is the child born in the US. That's the second generation American in sociology. Those are the terms we'll be using here. Third generation is the grandchild. So my mother was a first generation American. My father was a first generation American. Supposedly. Okay? Um, and I say supposedly because actually both of them uh, had a tenuous relationship to US citizenship that changed over time. I am a second generation American, and my children, therefore, are third generation. At least on my side. On their father's side, they're sec- second generation. Okay. Um, so here you see a picture of Hollywood. This actually comes from one of the books that i'm going to show you in a moment it gives you a sense of the landscape and i'm sure many of you already know that it's precisely this geography that um, inspired the investment of a group of financiers from eastern massachusetts from the boston area to uh, try to channel the power of the river to um, provide the energy source for uh, mills in uh, what was irish parish and became polio in the mid-19th century, 1850, by uh, constructing a dam that would allow for a control of the river flow and a series of canals, three in fact, that could then be used to power turbines that in turn would power mills um, sited along the canal. And this is a contemporary picture that I'm sure most of you recognize. Um, That was the infrastructure story. The more important part of the story, though, was the labor. That would o- occupy those mills. At the time of its founding, Irish Parish, as its name reveals, was a small, uh, rural, primarily. I can't quite get this to go. Uh, Community situated along the uh, Connecticut River Valley, um, and it was in fact the Irish who were the first laborers in the city. Oh, I don't, this is not working for me. Mm-hmm. Sure Fairly quickly, however, um, Irish labor was not enough to, to man, and it was largely male, although not exclusively, as you'll see, um, the labor force in the mills. And uh, French-Canadian laborers were recruited actively from uh, French Canada uh, and became a second large class of workers um, alongside German laborers. This is an image of the Skinner. I actually okay, want to go through all of the these fairly quickly. Let's see if it's going to let me do it. Okay, the Lyman mills, some photographs of paper mill workers. This is now for the 20th century see the difference in the clothing, right, and the drawings from the Mm -hmm. top. Um, And I think almost all of you know that although it was called Paper City, um, paper was not in fact its its major commodity, its major production. It was called that because of the quality of the paper, not because of the quantity of the paper that the city produced. Um, And it was a fine rag cotton paper because um, it was uh, using uh, rags that were then picked and sorted through by female laborers, women laborers, um, which, by the way, uh, was one of the major parts of the context here is that these were highly unsanitary working conditions, very right? dangerous working conditions, because very often these cotton rags uh, were sourced from people who had passed away, um, and very often they passed away from highly communicable diseases, right, so these women were working in poorly ventilated spaces without any kinds of protection, you know, she didn't exist until our Mount Holyoke Francis Perkins, right, the Perkins. Um, was part of the Labor Department in the 1930s under FDR and began to enact a series of of laws, um, largely, by the way, based on her experience at Mount Holyoke and witnessing firsthand the degraded working conditions of workers in the mills of Holyoke and the region. Um, Nonetheless, these women uh, did the work of sorting through these rags, picking out uh, any buttons or um, other uh, me- mechanical, or you know, things that might be on the clothing that would interfere with processing the material into what would become a, a rag cotton or heavy material-based paper. So it was Paper City, not because paper was the largest um, production uh, sector, but because it was high quality, and the city became famous for that. Um, really, it was more the textile mill productions of places like the Far Alpaca Company that um, that really constituted a larger share of the labor force and of the production. And again, you see that women workers were very important in the textile mills, particularly um, in terms of the the thread and the bobbins, girls and so forth. Um, So this was a uh, multi-ethnic, multilingual working class um, in Holyoke. Uh, Multilingual because, as I said, Irish, uh, many of whom also spoke uh, Gaelic and Uh, the native language of ireland as well as english the french canadian who spoke french uh, the germans right obviously who spoke german and um, increasingly towards the end of the 19th century polish workers who came at the turn of the century to the entire region but also to holyoke Um, a small number of russian jews were here in holyoke as well by the turn of the 19th century into the early 20th century and a small number of italians particularly from southern italy um, what you see here um, are photographs of tenement housing that surrounded the canals and uh, something that I always find fascinating when you think about this is that there, there were several reasons that they had to be this close but part of it had to do with being able to hear the, the bells, the bells ringing from the mills that would call the workers to the gates at opening time and would announce uh, when there was a meal break, when it was time to go home and so forth. Um, and in the absence of public transportation other than your own two feet, right? you also had to be in proximate distance to the canals. The other thing was that the canals, in addition to powering the turbines that, um, that provided the energy for the mills, also were a sewage system. Right? These canals received the human and household waste of the mills. Uh, so, not only were the conditions inside the mills themselves insalubrious and a real threat to the public health of the workers, the conditions outside the mills, in the actual street, right, the canals themselves, the city sidewalks, and then also, of course, the tenements themselves, which were highly overcrowded, um, lacked indoor plumbing very often, um, used uh, oil for lighting, etc. So, you know, lots of unhealthy conditions at work, outside industry, and in the household. Um, all of this together with the work itself which was six days a week 10 and 12 hours a day well into the 20th century um, child labor was very common as well this was not uh, again this is before the regulations that were put in place as a result of the US labor movement um, and um, uh, protections offered by the, the uh, uh, well the programs of FDR right the, the Great New Deal programs that uh, what you had then was a, society, a a community that was under tremendous pressure in a lot of ways, right, because of these laboring conditions. The other major context was inter-ethnic tension and rivalry and violence. Um, although most of these communities were Catholic, right, with the exception again of, say, the Lutherans who were largely German or the Russian Jews who were Jewish, um, they were Catholic of various ethnicities, French, Polish, and Irish. And um, it's still a surprise to me to to think about this, but um, despite sharing a common faith, and a faith that proclaims itself to be worldwide universal and incorporative by definition, and this is the major agenda of Catholicism, right, the sword and the cross to incorporate folks and presumably to uh, bring us, I'm gonna say, as a member of that larger polity, um, under one roof, there was in fact a great deal of violence and rivalry between these communities. Who were organized not only into parishes but actual neighborhoods based on their ethnicity. um, And who did literally did not speak across these lines. And you see those divisions reflected inside not only the tenements, but also inside the mills themselves, right? In terms of the kinds of jobs that people held. So these were divided by gender, right? So girls and women did certain kinds of work, and men and boys did other kinds of work, but also by ethnicity. Right, by national origin and by language. Uh, things such as marriage across these lines right, were uh, frowned upon, actively barred. And I still, in the 1990s, when I first moved into Holyoke, had old Holyokers tell me stories of having been kicked out of their parish for marrying across parish lines, marrying across ethnic lines. Right? Usually, by the way, it was the woman who had to leave her parish if she married a man from another parish. Um, so, you know, there was this uh, standard sort of uh, inter ethnic uh, rivalry happening in Holyoke. Um, that was also reflected in politics, which I'll come back to in a moment. Nonetheless, right, so you had uh, insalubrious working conditions, you had uh, an ethnic ordering, because there was very much a hierarchy. Um, the, what I also left out, I mentioned Russian Jews, I mentioned Catholics of various denominations, I mentioned Lutherans. Do you notice who I left out? Who's missing from this story? No, they're not here yet. We're still talking about the 19th century. I mentioned the Irish. The Yankees, right? The true elite, (laughs) the the owners of these mills, okay? The power brokers of the city and of New England more generally. Um, those folks were Protestants, they weren't Catholics. Okay? And they very much, up in the highlands, ran the city. Right? They ran the economy of the city and they ran the politics of the city. And they organized the city in such a way as to ensure, um, and this is well documented in another book called The Working People of Hóduk, which I'll show you in an image of in a minute, to ensure that the rabble downhill, right, whether they were Irish or French Canadian or Polish, or even German Lutherans uh, would uh, remain uh, downhill, right? both figuratively, politically, economically, and literally. Okay, so uh, this is very much a part of the story of upward social mobility and the kinds of barriers that folks who call themselves holierogers today experienced, Right, uh, so exclusion and discrimination, subjection to a hostile Uh, uh, inter-ethnic, inter-neighborhood violence, right, conditions um, as well as efforts to curtail um, their political power that they were otherwise entitled to as citizens right? as citizens whether they were naturalized immigrant citizens or citizens by birth, right, so all of this is true Um, and this is what people are often talking about when they tell you stories about their grandparents or great grandparents seeing seeing signs like "Irish Irish and dogs not welcome here right This is true, these things happen. However, what is often left out of the story, which is a critical part of the story that we're going to be talking about today, is that despite all those barriers and forms of discrimination and acts of violence and hostility, uh, these folks were all white on arrival, okay? Including the Irish and including Italian Americans who were explicitly subjected to what sounds like racialized violence and whose whiteness was brought into question at different times in the United States. In the 19th century, for example, we know that the Irish were often characterized as akin to African Americans, or as inside Negroes, or another N-word that was more often than not used, okay? To call into question their legitimacies as citizens, as potential citizens in the United States. Nonetheless, despite that fact, They were still not barred legally or otherwise from accessing their full citizenship rights. And moreover, in the case of the Irish, the parish system was able to coordinate very well with the democratic political machine in the 19th century, both in Massachusetts and in places like New York and New Jersey. uh, To do what? To consolidate Irish political power, right? To confront and contest Yankee hegemony, Anglo-American hegemony. Um, and this is also part of the story. So, while there is very much a disadvantaging taking place and an attempt to curtail and control, for example, Irish American political and social mobility, um, nonetheless, there were structures in place, including the law around what whiteness is and who gets to enter into it, that made their entry into existing institutions possible. If not in the first generation, then most definitely by the second and the third. Likewise with Italian-Americans, although Italians' uh, whiteness was often uh, uh, questioned, and in fact Italian immigrants were subjected to racialized violence like lynching, as happened with a dozen men from Sicily and Louisiana, for example, Um, there's a a really comprehensive map of lynching in the United States that you can very easily Google that um, has pinpoints for every documented case of lynching in the U.S through the 1960s, and actually more recently, we've had several lynchings, actually, all the way into this moment. Um, And you can find the pinpoints of Italian men primarily, although not exclusively, because women were also lynched, um, who were lynched in the United States, largely in the US South, but not exclusively, for example. Uh, And they too, like the Irish, were um, characterized as being similar to (coughs) African Americans as a way of refusing to acknowledge their whiteness. Nonetheless, as my colleague and friend Tom Guglielma has pointed out, the Italians were white on arrival. That's the title of his book if you're interested in that history. Okay, so this question then of being able to access whiteness under law, which then gave access to important political, economic, and cultural resources is a critical part of the story that makes it very different from the experience of Latinos and Latin American and Caribbean immigrants, as well as immigrants from Asia. This is a picture of Holyoke um, in the 1950s, early 19, 1900s, High Street. Um, Holyoke does manage to become one of the wealthiest industrial cities in the United States. In fact, one of the um, the snippets that i read for uh, in advance of coming it today said that at one point at the point at which actually uh miss skinner was uh, the bell of holyoke society in the pioneer valley um, holyoke had more millionaires per capita than any other place in the united states sort of surprising for us to think about that today in 2017 when holyoke has so many economic challenges um, but that was you know absolutely the case Holyoke was more than just an industrial city by the mid-1900s. Can I point something out?
1: So the city hall, Mm -hmm. Holyoke was so rich at that time that all of the granite that you see, all of the marble that you see in the city hall was exported from Italy.
0: Imported. Imported Imported. from Italy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So
1: that's how much wealth the city had.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it was a center of the arts. Um, the Victory Theater, I mean, all of that. It's hard for us to think about this now when we look at all the boarded up beautiful buildings, but in fact, it really was a thriving uh, uh, arts economy, um, industrial economy, et cetera. But um, that didn't last as long as we imagine it did. By the 1920s and 30s, the factories, the mills, that were at the heart of that economic prosperity were already beginning to leave Holyoke and to move south, not to Mexico or the Dominican Republic, but to Georgia and Alabama and Mississippi, to the US South, where there was still a a large class of African Americans who were looking to exit the sharecropping system that continued to hold them in another form of slavery, which is the name of another book you might want to look at, Um, But we're willing to work and we're in fact desperate to work in the kinds of jobs that were available now in these uh, companies that were moving to the south. So there are um, a series of books actually that are very accessible that have been published short and a little bit longer about the history of Holyoke. This is one that's called the Postcard History Series from which some of those images are drawn. Here are two that are part of the Images of America. This one was written by a former curator in, here at the Wisteria Hearst, Kate Thibodeau, on the left. And you can find these, I think, in the books in the gift shop, right? Yeah. Um, this, by the way, also available in the gift shop. This is a wonderful remake of the first documentary that was about Holyoke and its history called Power uh, that James Leskow did. And this was redone now, about 10 years ago, right? years ago, 2009, it's almost 10 years ago. Um, so this I recommend very highly, it's only an hour long, it's it's sold here at the gift shop, I'm not just selling it, it really is a wonderful remake of um, the original that was done called Power um, in the 1990s. And it gives you a wonderful overview of this history, I recommend it for any of you who are educators or do community work or just wanna have it at home. Um, so very quickly, this is from, um, one of the books that I showed you, and it gives you a sense of the growth in immigration and the, the shifting uh, native-born to foreign-born population in Holding. You can see that in 1850, there are only 3,200 residents in the city. Half, almost exactly, were born in um, Ireland. Uh, 40 were French-Canadian, 300 were Britain, by which we really mean Anglo, Yankees, right? Folks who were either Scotch or English. Um, By uh, 1860, the number's still only 4,500, give or take. Um, You begin to see the numbers rapidly multiplying by the 1870s and 80s and 90s, when the mills are growing in number and in production levels. And we begin to see a change in the complexion, the character of the the population. 5,500 are foreign born, 5,200 are native born, so more than half of the population is foreign born. Again, Ireland is the majority of that half. so 2800 of the 50 of the 10,000 people in Holyoke are Irish immigrants. More than half of the immigrants are from Ireland. French Canadian, 1700, um, English and German Now you begin to see 300 or so Germans by 1870. And you see the numbers increasing steadily until um, you see now the arrival of the Polish in 1890 and again this makes sense. that's when Poles in general begin to enter the Pioneer Valley. Um, And, let's see, Italy also by 1890, again this coincides with events happening in Poland and in England, excuse me, in Poland and in Italy, um, around the consolidation of the Polish state, the consolidation of the Italian state, consolidations that have disproportionately negative effects, as was the case by the way for the Irish and the French Canadian, on rural poor illiterate populations. That's one thing that all of those groups have in common. These are largely peasant immigrants, folks who are illiterate, who are farmers, um, more often than not, either working as tenant farmers, as in the case of the Irish, right, in their native lands, or as small-scale subsistence farmers who are now being subjected to taxation policies by their states, for example, Italy, that are trying to consolidate and modernize what was otherwise a not industrial, but industrializing economy. So I don't know if I said that slowly enough. So for example, in Northern Italy, which is where my family is from, on my father's side, uh, that was, as is often the case, and it seems in all these countries, the seat of economic and political power in Italy. Okay? Those elites who, ran, who controlled the Republican government of Italy that was just beginning to establish itself, initiated a series of tax and military conscription laws, okay, that began to tax the rural working class, if you want to think of them that way, although that's not exactly accurate, because these weren't wage laborers, right, these were subsistence farmers for the large measure, so that they would have the resources that they needed to fund a new Republican government apparatus, right, think bureaucracy for the government, we need that to establish things like birth records and death records and so on and so forth, right, but also to fund a military. And in addition to funding a military, you have to have bodies in the military. And those bodies have to be young men, usually under the age of 30, right? So conscription, military conscription is a large part of this story. So what you see is a situation, for example, in Italy, and you see similar situations in places like Poland, right? Where young men are leaving their society either first going to the cities of their community looking for wage work so that they can pay the taxes that are being levied on their family property and farms in order to hold on to those farms, right? or they're being conscripted into military service, right? in which case they can't then work to pay the taxes for the family farm. So the next option becomes emigration. Right? And where do they emigrate? To a place that is looking for laborers, who don't really need to know how to read and write, for example, who may not even necessarily need to know how to speak English. So long as they can do the small job that they are being required to do in a mechanized, division of labor, industrialized system, they're wanted. So the vast majority of these workers. For women, by the way, the parallel story is not only incorporation as illiterate, peasant women into these jobs that don't really require a whole lot of skills, they also have the additional possibility of being domestic laborers. They can work tending to other people's children, washing other people's clothes, cleaning other people's homes, cleaning cooking other people's food. Particularly for the growing technical and managerial class, say up the hill. So the possibility then of what is called, I think unfairly, unskilled or poorly skilled or low-skilled labor because is it really low-skilled to know how to cook a meal? Or tend to a child, for example? Um, Nonetheless, what this means was that there weren't really barriers to entry into this labor system, right? Um, The average person could in fact come and get a job because they didn't need to have particular skills in order to do that. Nor did they need to speak English in order to do that. Secondly, the jobs are actually available. So the desire was there, but so was the possibility and the opportunity, okay? Um, you see the city growing steadily but surely. Joseph, can you see from there? Oh, yeah. Can you see what number that says, yeah? How many people do we have at the high point?
1: The high point is 1960.
0: Yeah. How many?
1: Uh, 63,000.
0: There's 63,000 people in 1960. That is the peak of Holyoke's population. That is the point at which all those buildings that we see that are boarded up and empty now were actually full. That was 70 years ago. The population in Holyoke began to decline by 1960. It didn't begin to decline in 1970 or 1980 or 1990 or 2000. It began to decline in 1960. And it began to decline as people moved out of the city, first to local communities, such as South Hadley or Hadley or Northampton or East Hampton or East Longmeadow, largely due to their increasing prosperity, by the way, as they moved away from the center city and even the upper wards of Holyoke to more suburban and more highly resourced communities. Um, this was exacerbated, as my uh, old friend and mentor, peace, Fiscal Lovega pointed out, um, by the construction of the interstate, 91 and 33, which bisected the city and produced a situation where bedroom communities that were propping up, developments that were propping up, outside of Holyoke became increasingly attractive, particularly given FHA policies, Federal Housing Authority policy, that very explicitly redlined certain communities as undesirable and poor investments, particularly communities that had large numbers of African Americans and or Latinos, um, in particular parts of the country, and made those literally an economic bad investment. The federal government's policy did that. and at the same time incentivize the production of suburban bedroom communities. Right? Um, as my colleague and friend Laura Lovett in the UMass History Department has pointed out, this, by the way, was part of a project that was not only classed and race, but highly gendered. Because the intention was to remove white women from the labor force in the 1950s and put them into suburban bedroom communities in the aftermath of World War II. Right? Um, and to have them begin to increase the production of white babies. (laughs) So it's it's a really fascinating story when you you actually take the time to learn it. Um, And you begin to see then the slow and steady decline in Holyoke's population by uh, 1960, 1970, 80, and so forth. So that in 2000, as this table only goes that far, it's 39,000. Today, it's really still about that 38,000, 40,000 mark. Um, it hasn't grown very much since then. Um, interestingly, we begin to see the first documented Puerto Ricans, all of a sudden, 6,000 people showed up in the city yeah. <laughs> <laughs> by 1980, right? Uh, and before that, apparently not, but okay, we'll, <laughs> we'll come back to that. Um, So what you see then, right, is uh, also a transition, by the way, in the number or the percentage of folks who are foreign born. You see here, in this year, 1920, still half of the population is foreign born. This, by the way, is also beginning to coincide with the moment when you have the uh, leaving of Mills from the city of Holyoke and moving south. It begins in the 1920s and 30s. And you see that by 1930, the proportion of foreign-born people is now down to about a third. Uh, The other major thing that happens in the 20s is the 1924 Immigration Act, which uh, institutes uh, not the first, but the uh, first that target Europeans, made this legislation to bar immigration to the United States from certain countries. And I say it's not the first immigration restriction. The first one was actually in 1875 with the Page Act that limited the entry of Chinese women to the United States. Um, The reason for that, by the way, was concern that there were too many Chinese men, and the idea was that if you limit the entry of Chinese women, you prevent the production of a Chinese American community. So the Page Act explicitly was focused on limiting Chinese women. That wasn't working quickly enough for um, anti Uh, Chinese for xenophobic legislators and and, uh, agitators in the 19th century Um, so they developed another act called the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 which explicitly barred entry to nationals from China. This by the way was in the immediate aftermath of the fact that it was largely Chinese labor that completed the Pacific side of the Union Pacific Railroad in 1869. Once those men finished the work of laying the rails for the Union Pacific Railroad, um, they they were summarily expelled, often violently, on the very same railroads that they had helped to build out of the communities that they found themselves in in the US Midwest, which is why you have, by the way, the establishing of Chinatowns. It's not just that migrants and immigrants clump together, although we do. We tend to congregate with people who speak our language, eat our food, worship our gods, Um, have the same birth and death and marriage rituals that we have, et cetera. This is a a human tendency, Um, but this was also enforced through violence, right? They were barred from living outside of these congregated, segregated communities, right? So the first major immigration law that the United States passes um, are these two exclusionary acts. Uh, This culminates by 1924 um, in the Immigration Act that limited immigration from Western and Southern Europe. The specific concern there were Italians and Jews. There were too many of them at this point um, in the United States according to the nativist legislators. Um, This was also the moment, by the way, when the science of race and the eugenics movement in the United States had begun to really establish itself as legitimate and credible science that argued as Madison granted in a very famous book in 1924 that the white race was being quickly exterminated through promiscuous breeding on the part of for example italian catholics but also on the part of jews and other poor stock of europeans okay Um, and so the concern was to limit entry of folks from those places, and at the same time in the US to limit reproduction among those lower stock peoples. Okay? So, all of that is happening in the 1920s um, and most certainly accounts for part of the reduction right, in the share of foreign born folks in Holyoke. Um, 1940, only about a third of the population, excuse me, only about a fourth of this point of the population is foreign born. By 1960, when we're at the peak of 52,000, only 7300 people are foreign-born, right? So it's a largely a U.S. born population. Largely, although not exclusively, white, okay? I say not exclusively because we know that, for example, by 1954, a man named Carlos Vega and his family were here from Ecuador, right? And they weren't alone, although they certainly felt like it sometimes, I'm sure. <laughs> so, um, okay. So where is it then that these 6,000 Puerto Ricans suddenly appear from? Well, let's see if we can get to that part of the story. Okay, very quickly, I also want to point out to you some more research before I come to that question. Um, I just found this today. It's a wonderful master's thesis written by a young man who went to UMass, Jonathan Haber from main to high consumer's class and the spatial reorientation of an industrial city. You can quickly Google this and find it. It's a wonderful uh, study of Holid that looks at consumption patterns and through that gets at a really richly detailed sense of what life was like in Holyoke in the 19th and 20th century. It's fascinating. It's really wonderful reading. I recommend it. Um, So that's something you might want to look at if you're interested in more of this history. Let's see if I can get. Here we go. I want to go down. All right. Next time I'm bringing my Mac. Let's see. There we go. Okay. Um, One of the first studies published about Holyoke was in 1939, um, a study by, gosh, my name is escaping me now. Uh, Constance Green. Yes, thank you. Constance Green. Thank you so much. Holyoke, Massachusetts, a case study of the industrial. Something in America, I can't make it out right now. It's one of the very first studies, and I think she went to Mount Holyoke also. Have you read her book? Yeah. Um, another book, though, that was published in that same year that isn't, I think, well-known is historical fiction called The Deloussin Family, which is about a French-Canadian family in Holyoke. And as uh, Joseph Haberman points out, the first author, Jacques Ducharne, was born in Holyoke in 1910 to parents of French-Canadian descent. His great grandfather Nicholas Proul, there are still Prouls here today in Holyoke, right? Um, was the employment agent who brought scores of poor Quebecois farm families south to Holyoke in the 1850s for the Lyman textile mills. As a recruiter for Lyman, Proul became wealthy, and his descendants, including Jacques Duham, were important figures in the civic and social life of wards one and two, the areas of the flats and Tiger Town that became the center of French Canadian working class culture in Holyoke. Mm-hmm. It's not especially well written, but still fascinating. Some of you may have seen this book before, The Parish and the Hill. This was written by um, uh, Mary Doyle Curran. This is the edition that was reproduced by the feminist press of CUNY, by the way. Doyle Curran wrote from the perspective of a young Irish girl, based in large part on her own childhood. Born in Hodeok in 1917 to Mary Sullivan and Edward Doyle, Her father was a wool sorter at the city's largest employer, the Far Alpaca Mill. Doyle Curran's books and her unpublished manuscripts depict Irish working class life from 1920 to 1939. Ducharme's novel, on the other hand, takes place from the 1870s to the 1910s. So if you were to read these two back to back, you'd get a pretty good sense of what life in Holyoke was like. And a lot of these themes of violence and poverty, exclusion, exploitation in the labor market, racialization, inter-ethnic tension, gender, are covered in both of these um, historical novels. I recommend them very highly. What's fascinating when my students read these books, and they have, is how much what these two authors depict about their experience in Holyoke in the late 19th century and in the early 20th century, how many of those themes of labor exploitation and exclusion from the political system and racialized violence and ethnic violence and language and linguistic barriers and challenges to their citizenship rights and violence based on gender, how much of that is part of the experience of Latinos in the city today? How very many of the same issues that are characterized as somehow being cultural or a part of the Puerto Rican experience are really about the process of incorporation in the city of Holyoke and in the broader United States. This is a picture by Jerome Liebling who did a beautiful exhibit just a couple of years ago. I think it was here at the Horse, wasn't it? Possibly. Does anyone remember? Because I know it's... Open square? open square, okay. Well, um, Behind the Tenement, Uh, photographs of Holyoke. This was only a few years ago. Did you go to that one, Maria? It's beautiful. Um, And this depicts for you, right, what many of you have already seen, the back of buildings that are still in place today in Holyoke. Uh, The same buildings that were formerly occupied by the Irish and the French-Canadian and the Polish and so forth, now occupied by Latinos. Um, When a Heart Turns Rock Solid was written by my colleague who's now in Cleveland, um, who spent, who went to UMass Amherst and who spent 16 years working alongside and with a a family of Puerto Rican brothers, three brothers that he met when he was teaching ESL classes in Springfield, Massachusetts. And this family story covers Springfield and Holyoke and Greenfield and Hartford, right? So it's very much a Pioneer Valley story, and I recommend it highly. Um, And what he does is to narrate sociologically the kinds of barriers and obstacles that these brothers and their parents and larger family have to navigate as they try to make it in the city. The city that they find themselves in at any given moment. And how the shifting landscape of opportunity in the United States compels or constrains them in different directions. Well, what are some of those constraints? Um, Those brothers, as is the case for many Puerto Ricans in the city of Holyoke, who, by the way, are not immigrants. I know this is Immigrant Heritage Month. Um, The vast majority of Latinos in Holyoke are Puerto Rican. They are not immigrants. I think almost all of you know this. They are US citizens, and in fact, this year, this month, is the 100th anniversary of the imposition of citizenship on Puerto Ricans in 1917 under the Jones Act. And I say the imposition because Puerto Ricans were not asked if they wanted U.S. citizenship. Puerto Rico was part of the um, outcome of the Cuban-Spanish-American War of 1898 um, in which the United States intervened at a key moment with the Battle of San Juan Hill and Teddy Roosevelt and the Rough Riders, right, that whole story, um, and ultimately defeated both Spain and, as it turns out, Cuba, okay, and by extension, Puerto Rico, Guam, the Philippines, the Marshall Islands, etc. Okay, who had all been under Spanish colonial control. That control was transferred to the United States under the Treaty of 1899, the Treaty of Paris. Okay. Unlike the Philippines and Cuba, which eventually became independent, if somewhat still subject to U.S. intervention, Puerto Rico and Guam remain U.S. colonies today. They remain subject to U.S. federal authority. Puerto Rico was granted administratively U.S. citizenship in 1917, not because Puerto Ricans themselves requested it, but because the U.S. federal government asserted it. To what end? So that Puerto Ricans could be conscripted into World War I Mm -hmm. at the height of the war. Tens of thousands of Puerto Rican men were drafted and uh, served in the US military forces. Very um, successfully, by the way, they had uh, one of the highest rates of commendation um, for what that's worth for those who you know, find those things important um, uh, in the war. And uh, that's one part of it. The second part of it is that that citizenship is very explicitly a second-class citizenship. Um, Puerto Ricans who are in Puerto Rico cannot vote in US federal elections. They do not vote for president, they do not have a representative in Congress, they do not have a senator, two senators, they don't get any of the representation that states get in the United States because they are not a state. There was a plebiscite held there on Sunday where Puerto Rican voters were asked what the status, and this is something you'll hear very often if you follow Puerto Rican studies or Puerto Rican politics at all, the status question, were asked if they wanted to become a state, remain essentially a colony which is called commonwealth, or pursue independence. As background I should tell you that typically 85 to 90% of eligible voters in Puerto Rico show up for elections. 85 to 90%. That's almost 3 to 4 times the rate of US mainland voters. Mm-hmm. Okay, where we get anywhere from 19 to 23% at high turnout elections in the U.S., okay? So voting participation is very, very high in Puerto Rico. This particular vote only had a 23% turnout rate. So that's one thing. Of that 23%, 80% voted in favor of statehood, which was a surprise because that is one of the first times that you have a large number of those who vote favoring statehood, so as an aside. Uh, the rationale of many of those who voted in favor of statehood was precisely so that after 100 years of being subjected to US federal authority they should finally have representation in the government that is legislating on them if not on their behalf necessarily okay Um, so that is part of what's going on Uh, if those folks leave Puerto Rico and come to the US mainland and reside in Holyoke Massachusetts or Miami or Los Angeles, they can vote for president just like any other resident of that state. So if they want to exercise their franchise and participate in US federal elections, they have to be in the mainland as residents of a US state. That might be part of the reason why now, today, as of the 2010 census, there are more Puerto Ricans outside of Puerto Rico than there are on the island. More than Mm -hmm. half of the population has emigrated from the island. So imagine a state of the United States losing half of its population. Part of the reason for that uh, is also the economy. Puerto Rico's economy um, is very much a, a colonial economy that largely has been organized to serve US corporate interests. Tax breaks and the nature of production in Puerto Rico is very much driven by investors in places like Boston, Massachusetts. And the Atlantic seaboard, uh, New York and New Jersey. All of that is part of the background to why Puerto Ricans find themselves in places like Holyoke, Massachusetts. Um, in the 1950s, Puerto Ricans who are US citizens, who can freely emigrate, at least in terms of barriers, right? They don't have any barriers to entry other than financial, right? Um, were also systematically encouraged to leave Puerto Rico as labor migrants by the Migrant Department of Puerto Rico, which was a joint federal government and Puerto Rican governance um, unit that channeled workers to places like Hawaii, where they would be farm laborers, for example, for the Dole Plantation Corporation, or Alaska, yes, Puerto Ricans in Alaska, where they would do things like help build pipelines, or Chicago, where they would replace the increasingly smaller class of African-American women and become increasingly domestic workers for the suburban class that was growing in Chicago, suburban middle white class, okay? Um, There's a book written by a Williams University, college professor called The Grounded Identidad that narrates that. Or along the East Coast in Boston and New York City and Philadelphia and New Jersey for the mills of uh, factories of this area, and or finally, thank you guys, in the Connecticut River Valley as tobacco workers. They were systematically brought to be tobacco workers because they had those skills from Puerto Rico. Um, and what happened over the 1950s was that, although the migration was meant to be a transitory one that would come, work the crop, and return to Puerto Rico, eventually folks began to establish roots and settle here, in large part because ac- economic opportunities in Puerto Rico itself became smaller and smaller for this group. Okay, uh, and so they found themselves uh, migrating to places like Holyoke because as their uh, capacity to access jobs fluctuated with economic recessions, Um, the pursuit of affordable housing drew them to places like Holyoke, where these tenements were now being emptied, these tenements that had previously been occupied by those French Canadians, by the Irish, by the Polish, and so forth, who had moved uphill or out of Holyoke, were now available and low cost. Uh, but still uh, dangerous living conditions. So the context then of living in the same uh, uh, insalubrious and unhealthy tenements, of entering uh, very many of the same poorly paid, exploited, and often dangerous sectors of the economy, um, and like the white ethnic who came before them, still being citizens, but finding their capacity to exert their political rights as citizens, even on the US mainland, despite the idea that supposedly, once you're in the mainland and you're Puerto Rican and you're a citizen by birth and by legislation, the actual capacity to enact their citizenship as politically active, formal uh, members of the polity has increasingly been restrained and prevented through a variety of Uh, institutional effects. One of them is segregation. And I'm looking at Orlando, because he was one of the lead plaintiffs in a case that was brought against the city of Holyoke for the way that its ward system systematically barred Puerto Ricans, not explicitly, but demographically, from enacting their actual political power. I mean, this is part of a larger pattern of um, what uh, sociologists will call the Matthew effect, which is that barriers to upward social mobility, right, the kinds of things that constrain our social opportunities end up having a cumulative effect. They build on one another and produce a situation where it's never one thing that has to be addressed. It's always the the interaction between all of these elements. So I'm almost, I know I'm out of time, but I'm just going to quickly go through um, and say that uh, The framework here is understanding that poverty is not merely the lack of adequate income for daily needs and survival. For the family, it means difficulties around community, housing, crime, and safety, debt, environment, childcare, and schools. Um, And it's this confluence of working and living in poverty, health consequences of discrimination, the effects that it has even on the developing fetus because the mother is a person who's navigating these situations and this has very serious long-term consequences for fetal development, which in turn has consequences for children who are entering into school systems that are poorly funded and are not organized to meet their needs culturally and otherwise, and this is a photograph of Puerto Rican school kids in the 1970s in Holyoke, of efforts to constrain their ability to uh, learn English Um, constraints around segregation, residential segregation in Holyoke, and um, white flight from the Holyoke public school system. White flight into largely Catholic schools, right? That find themselves overcrowded, but host to um, white ethnics who want to remain in the city, but don't want to necessarily uh, have uh, participate in the public school system alongside Latino and low-income families, okay? So very quickly, to give you a sense of what this looks like, um, the family context and how it's framed by the neighborhood context, um, we have here, this is data that my students compiled in 2013. We're going to compare um, the McMahon Elementary School, which was one of the highest performing schools in the whole public school system. Um, We're not incorporating the Latino Charter School, which does better, but there are reasons for that comparing it to Kelly School, which is one of the most poorly performing schools in the system in terms of third grade educational, uh, excuse me, third grade English language levels, reading levels specifically. Um, And what you see is that a large part of the context that explains why McMahon children are doing better than Kelly children has to do with the family and the community it finds itself embedded in. 77% of family households in McMahon are married two-parent households. Um, 63% of households in Kelly are single moms, okay? Um, So one parent versus two, whether it's mom or dad, one adult versus two, okay? That makes a huge difference. Um, 2.4% of the families in the McMahon School receive SSI. 32% of families in the Kelly School are on SSI, Supplemental Security Income. Only 1% of households in McMahon receive cash assistance. In other words, entitlement programs. 16% of households receive cash assistance. And now that's not as high as you might have imagined, by the way. That means 84% of households are not receiving right, TANF. So let's hold on to that one for a minute because I know that that breaks with some stereotypes. Um, 2% receive food stamps or SNAP benefits in McMahon. 59% are eligible and receive SNAP benefits food support okay, in Kelly. None of the married couple family households with children in the McMahon School District had a family, had an income below poverty. None were below poverty level. Compared to 45% of the families in Kelly. So almost half of these families were living below the poverty level. That's if you don't even question the poverty level's indexing, which you can. Is that where you were gonna go, with? So in county schools, 75% English is not the first language, in McMahon, 30%, okay? But it's still a a fair number are uh, English language learners still. So it's not just that, it's the neighborhood effect, okay, that also matters here. 100% of single mother-headed households with children under age five had an income below the poverty level, okay? By age three, a poor child will have heard 30 million fewer words in his or her home environment than a child from a professional family. And this matters. In terms of learning to read and reading to learn, the poor get poorer. This has uh, long-term consequences, but so does, again, the nature of the school system and its disciplinary apparatus, right? Um, Children who are entering the school system with highly stressed environments, beginning from fetal and moving on outward, right? Um, find themselves in a school system that is oriented more towards punishment than towards understanding and restoration, right, of a balance for these kids. Um, So Holyoke has the dubious honor of being the fourth highest suspending district for Latinos in the U.S. In the U.S., in the entire country, okay? It's surpassed only by Hartford, Thornton, Illinois, and Miami Unified District. Not New York City, not Chicago, okay, not Philadelphia, Holyoke. Yeah. Yeah. so
1: what
0: is it now? It's, it's still, we have a new receiver and I know he's working on new data, um, so they are working to reduce it. So I, I don't know the answer explicitly, but I don't think that they've managed to, to get out of this bracket just yet. Okay, um, This is a little old, it's 2007, but the numbers again, are not that different still that Holyoke is still doing worse than uh, the rest of the state both in terms of all students and in terms of Latinos specifically in terms of um, high school dropout rates which is directly connected to um, suspension right so kids who are suspended are basically in a fast track to dropping out right um, for reasons that I think are are self-evident to most of us here, right? They're being pushed out into the streets, they're not uh, having supervision, right? They find themselves in more contact with the policing forces, et cetera. For girls, they're more likely to get pregnant as a result, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? It's this reciprocating Matthew effect. Um, When you are pushed out, your um, unemployment and poverty rates are, um, (laughs) again, almost guaranteed, more likely to be unemployed, in poor health and on public assistance, Right, compared to folks who managed to make it through high school and beyond okay um, this is a picture of the arson uh, crisis in Holyoke which we uh, can you know talk about as well um, and so I want to make sure though that as I end that I don't leave you then with um, uh, confusion between the being broke, which means having resources, not having money, and a common trope about Latinos in general and Holyoke Puerto Ricans in specific, um, which is the culture of poverty argument, which is that that, uh, there's something in Puerto Rican culture, or something in Puerto Rican families that accounts for this, and it's just simply not true. It is simply not the case. What you see, Holyoke Latino families, Puerto Rican families, is engaging in survival strategies that are no different than families from any other ethnic origin, who find themselves in similar circumstances, okay? First of all. Second of all, um, the language barrier and the lack of cultural competence on the part of educators, administrators, and politicians, right? So I'm turning this around on you. The language barrier is not on behalf of the immigrant or the migrant, which is what Puerto Ricans are, but on the part of the communities and the institutions that are supposed to be serving those immigrants and migrants as residents and as citizens. These folks are citizens. They're entitled to these resources. Uh, And there's a misunderstanding even on the part of folks who are attempting to serve those communities. Um, This is an interview that was conducted with um, someone who teaches ESL in Holyoke who again is a really well intentioned um, community advocate Um, but even she has a hard time understanding um, what she calls an adverse thing. There's one adverse thing, a byproduct of the cultural component, which is that for Puerto Ricans, family will come before school. So this is her quoting one of her students I will take care of and drive my grandmother to, and I will take care of and drive my uncle to. And in the Spanish community, there's a different emphasis. And so school sometimes becomes second to family, and we fight that. I fight it. For this educator, the commitment on the part of her adult students to to taking care of their family, to mutual aid and to reciprocity, is adverse. It's a barrier between the student and their academic achievement, the English language learning efforts, right? Anything wrong with that framing? Ruth? here is a clash of cultural paradigms okay on the one hand you also have a lack of understanding of class working and poor people have to rely on one another mutual aid societies are part and parcel of the experience of migration and of navigating a system that is oriented against poor and working people right in the absence of cash resources it is mutual aid that provides a safety net, that fills the gap. In the context of a transportation system that is non-existent in Holyoke, there is no public transportation here to speak of at all, really, right? So if you happen to be the person in your family who's got access to a car, and all the health services, and psychological services, and governmental offices, and schools even, have to be driven to because they are not within walking distance of where you live, segregated in the lower wards, in the tenements, and public housing projects, and even, perhaps, as a renter in a two-family home, that car becomes a community resource, a family resource. You do have an obligation to provide chauffeur and transportation services because there is not a bus that will be able to take you there. Oh, and by the way, things like getting groceries. If you live in the lower wards and you want to get to stop and shop, you have a long walk uphill. I know because I've made my students do it every semester. Okay? That's an eye-opener. And there aren't a lot of sidewalks along the way either, by the way, okay? So a car, I have to drive my grandmother to, I have to drive my uncle to, that's not a cultural Although some of us would say yes, Latinos are more family. What group says it isn't family-oriented?
1: Hmm. <laughs> right. Name it for me. Name
0: it for me. Which ethnicity says no? We don't care about our families. We don't like that. <laughs> Even the Trumps love each other, right? So like, you know, so it's not the notion of like Latinos being especially, you know, familia-oriented it's, it's just not so. What you have, right, is a general human tendency to mutual aid and family-based and kinship-based networks of care. That's a general human tendency, universal, worldwide, and transhistorical. okay? Wicked sorry. Systems like capitalism tend to intervene in that, and that is part of what you see here. Framing uh, mutual aid as adverse, right, and interfering in upward social mobility is because In a system that is about personal wealth and personal upward social mobility, commitment to sharing resources and mutual aid does, in fact, intervene with that model. It does run counter to it. But that's a structural problem, right? And it's a cultural problem to the extent that we normalize that, right? Normalizing that as the model that is requisite for success and upward social mobility is actually the bigger problem, I would argue. Right. and is behind a lot of our political conflicts today. Um,
1: there's, a, there's an old movie that sort of depicts this kind of um, thing in terms
0: of a Who's uh, Russian. Yes. Selma Hayek and yeah. Matthew mm-hmm. Perry. It's, a, it's just such a
1: great, like, perception of, like, yes. you know, Latino families versus, like, Anglo Anglo or, Anglo-American yeah. families. White families. And I think mean, mean, it's just a, really, yeah. a great example of
0: that. Yeah. But what we see again and again is that mutual aid and uh, resource sharing and social network is part of how families that are in vulnerable positions, regardless of their ethnicity, survive, right? It's how they, they step I in. Say, I even
1: seen in my job with like, working in the school department, mm-hmm. like I have a lot of people call me and be like, I'm not the parent, but huh. I'm basically the parent. Right. And I'm like, so right. that's like a problem. Like, mm-hmm. I would rather have a brother and I have like, someone early like, wiggle room being like, okay, it's a grandmother, it's an aunt. Like I have a lot of like extended family members who call me. Like this little department won't let me do this, but I watch her all the time, and I'm basically like mm-hmm. doing this while the mother's working, like right. right? all these yeah. things. And I'm like, yeah, like that's that should be a considered mm-hmm. a considered thing. It's not like they're choosing. Right. Like these people are just coming in because they have to.
0: And that's a key part of it, right? So so, um, one of the last slides I have here for you is about investing in families, not just the children, because when policy is very often, and again, specifically in Hollywood, but I think we could say more broadly in the U.S., uh, particularly around school systems and provision of services, there's a tendency to say, well, the child is innocent, Right. Mm-hmm. The family is dysfunctional and, and possibly morally problematic and suspect and politically suspect, but the child is innocent, so we're going to produce policies that address the needs of this innocent child. I'm taking answer. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but because we don't want any responsibility for these morally and politically suspect family members, right? right? Mm-hmm. The problem is that children are embedded in families who are embedded in communities, right? right? First of all, and second of all, they're all part of the same system, right? So, you know, the notion of childhood innocence and family pathology is fundamentally problematic, right? So you have to invest in families, not just the children, because it doesn't work. It's never going to work. It hasn't worked for us yet, and it's not going to work for us now. Um, And then lastly, the problem of political power in Holyoke has to do with, um, and that's an example of it. So if you had more Latinos making policy, they might be able to say things like, look, the standard North American family model, where you have one of the two biological parents as the responsible, the only responsible party who can step in in these cases, right, is first of all largely sexist, because we say parent, we mean mom.
1: Right.
0: Right? In fact, we mean mom, because the majority of the time it's mom, right? right. Um, and we also <clears throat> presume middle class status, we presume a certain educational attainment level, certain language capacities, and so forth, as a co-teacher and co-educator to the schools for the school system. So, mom's labor, we expect that we can extract, right, to supplement the school system. We don't ever compensate mom for that, by the way. We don't give her social security benefits or award her the second degree or anything like that. We just take that, right? And when the child fails, we blame her too. Okay. Um, So there's a lot of problems with that model to begin with. It's called the Standard North American Family. Dorothy Smith, you can look that one up. But it often works because as it happens, middle class mothers have been coerced into providing their free labor, okay? (laughs) And doing that work of supplementing the labor of the school system. We have done it, okay? Um, But for working class, poor, or migratory families, that's just not possible. No matter how much mom may want to, She just doesn't have the capacity or the resources to. But what she does do very often is recruit the labor of others. The sisters, the neighbors, the grandparents, the aunts, the uncles, and so on and so forth. When and where she can, right? Um, so, So if we had folks in positions that were making policy who understood that fact, they might make policies that would allow for these other frames for thinking about how do families provide support for one another, right? Instead what happens is that this looks pathological. This looks like this is a problem. They're a problem, right? and this has to do with the question of symbolic power in Holyoke, right? We still have a culture here in Holyoke that is happy to celebrate ethnicity when it's a St. Patrick's Day parade, which is not saying we shouldn't do that. Please don't, you know, misconstrue me. St. Patrick's Day is great, I love it. You know, the parade and all that, yay, right? But, We have other ethnic pride displays in the city of Holyoke that not only do not receive nearly the same amount of publicity and welcome and fanfare, but very often are characterized as somewhat dangerous, suspect, and problematic, such as the Festival de la Familia Hispana.
1: Even though there was a shooting at the last um, St. Patrick's Parade and all the types of drunkenness. Right, right,
0: the high levels of public displays of drunkenness, right? So uh, why not shamrocks and cookies? The frog of Puerto Rico, pierogies and plátanos, right? Why, in fact, um, would not all of these uh, symbols of ethnic pride be acceptable in the city for those of us who like those things? And again, but as a participant in the poetry night at Salsarengue restaurant, which is a local um, eating establishment, but also, I would argue, an informal cultural center in the city. Uh, said when my students were interviewing folks about these questions, the city is allergic to Spanish, um, and you could say that it's more broadly allergic to Latinos, um, um, even, again, uh, and this is, I'm not gonna slam Wisteria Hearst, but just a little bit, um, even mm-hmm. <laughs> the Wisteria Hearst, which is, uh, you know, this is a 2014 exhibit, a Legacy of Jodak's Music, People, and Places, to 1950, right? This was the golden era. Right? So the 1950s, Mountain Park, and the Carousel, and Epstein's Furniture, and High Street, and the, the place that you went to get a soda, right? And then the Puerto Ricans came, and they just blew it all up They destroyed it, right? right? So like, it's mythology, first of all. By 1950 uh, <laughs> is when you have the downturn, and you have the massive emigrations before the Puerto Ricans ever arrived on High Street, Main Street, or you know, South Street, or what have you, okay? people began to leave the city, and the economy was declining, and the city had suffered through several major recessions already, okay? Um, So it's it's myth-making, and even institutions like Westeros have to break with that historicizing in a way that produces this kind of before them and after them framework, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Because it does add to that difficulty. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is where we see then why the city's not just allergic to Spanish, it's allergic to Latinos, and, and Puerto Ricans are the majority of the Latinos. They're not all, the only Latinos, and in fact, in this room, we see folks who are from Colombia, and El Salvador, in the Dominican Republic, etc. cetera. Right? There are, in fact, other Latinos from Holyoke. Um, but Puerto Ricans still are the vast majority, um, and when you had a Hampshire college undergraduate, David Flores, um, get commissioned, to uh, do a public artwork celebrating the Puerto Rican heritage of Holyoke, and he developed this um, mural-sized license plate, which evokes license plates in Puerto Rico, um, but instead of putting the name of the city in Puerto Rico, um, as would normally be here, he put Holyoke, right? So indicating that Holyoke is now a city of the Puerto Rican diaspora, which is in fact accurate if you consider that more than half of the population is Puerto Rican. Okay. But this uh, triggered a tremendous backlash in, in 2014. Excuse me, And the person who had originally agreed to display this mural outside her business, a Polish-American Holyoker, um, rescinded the offer. And David found himself um, in the middle of this firestorm. And ultimately, the city, Mayor Alex Morse, offered the site of City Hall and you can still go there and see this today. But what it did was to really, you know, scratch at the surface, right, of the ongoing um, resistance to the Puerto Rican presence in Holyoke and its public representation as-
1: If you check out Facebook on where that went on, I think it was the last time I checked it, it was like something comments, the most comments that I've ever seen on a Facebook page Mm -hmm. about some very nasty, some um, some trying to be allies, I've
0: never seen people be so moved to post things on on Facebook. Hostile things. I'm trying to be nice. I'm trying to be nice. So, one of the things that, and and, um, I keep saying I'm going to end, but I promise I will now. One of the things that uh, this reminds me of here. Um, is that in addition to laying bare some of the ongoing racist impulses and perceptions of Puerto Ricans and Latinos more broadly in Holyoke, it also lays bare the fact that this is a community with a tremendous amount of assets, right? Because I talked to you about some of the challenges and I framed the questions of um, poverty and ex- exclusion and so forth, but this is also a very rich community, um, culturally and otherwise, broke but not poor. Latino family and community assets, which are hidden in plain sight in Holyoke, there's a tremendous amount of cultural and social and human, economic, and increasingly political capital. Um, and this is exemplified precisely through the community-based organizations that are called the Main Street organizations, such as a, a Nueva Esperanza, founded by Carlos Vega, may he rest in peace, the father, um, the deceased father of Aaron Vega, now one of our state representatives. Um, Nueva Esperanza, as you know, is on Main Street and it was one of the first Latino-serving community-based organizations in the city. Gustavo, for a moment, was um, acting director of Nueva Esperanza. S- several of us here have been involved with the organization. Nuestra Raices, which was co-founded between a Hampshire college graduate and uh, several local Puerto Rican gardeners who um, were already beginning to recover rubble, strewn, burnt out lots, right, who collaborated and established um, Our Roots, modeled on the Casita uh, projects that were happening in places like Chicago and New York City, where Puerto Rican farmers found themselves. Um, enlace de Familias, Uh, whose executive director still today is Betty Medina-Lichtenstein, who was the first Puerto Rican to hold elected office in the state of Massachusetts when she was elected to the Holyoke School Committee in the 1980s, um, which she did because she found herself in the position of having to advocate for her own sons in the Holyoke Public School and found herself deeply frustrated by the incapacity of the teachers and administrators to really serve her children's needs. And so she did what many Puerto Rican women did. She organized and then she ran for office. and and she's still there today, okay? Um, So these folks um, definitely are uh, exemplars themselves, but also the organizations and the communities that they find themselves in of the efforts of Puerto Ricans to advocate for themselves, right? And especially, I'm gonna say again, Puerto Rican women, who are so often characterized in these negative ways, but they are the community leaders, the organizers, the social support systems, the first responders, right? Um, there's a saying in Spanish, which is de tripa corazones, the loose um, translation of which is to make a silk purse out of a sow's ear, right? Or to um, make out of tripe heart. So I'll leave it at that. Do you have any questions? I've talked a lot, I'm sorry. The last thing I'll leave you with is that I I had someone tell me a story once that really captured the sort of ethos of what I'm proposing here and you're and I want to say you're right that is but I mean but I don't want us to you know just rest on those laurels right we have to really think structurally um, and not just sort of particularly we have this mayor what happens next time, That's right. right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to think more structurally in terms of design. Mm-hmm. So if we think about it in terms of universal design principles, mm-hmm. right, which means if you build a society or a house or a school mm-hmm. or a community that is accessible to its most vulnerable members, mm-hmm. everyone mm-hmm. benefits, mm-hmm. and the story that captures that is a young man arrives, a special needs child who's in a wheelchair, arrives one day at school, you know how sometimes those transporters get there a little earlier than than the other buses do, and it had snowed the night before. So the custodian was in front, shoveling the steps off, because soon, the regular buses would be arriving, and dozens of kids would be streaming off, and these steps were full of snow. So the young man arrives, and his transporter lowers his seat, and the ramp still is full of snow so the young man asked the custodian could you please shovel the ramp first so that i can get in and the custodian is busily shoveling. and says i can't because the other buses are coming and the kids are going to get here soon and the young man says yes but if you shovel the ramp we can all get in Mm
1: -hmm.
0: they can walk up the ramp too but i can't take the steps Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and sometimes it's so obvious, right, but we don't see it unless we happen to be the one in the wheelchair. Mm-hmm. So I would just you know, ask us to think about you know, that, where there might be ramps that are hidden in plain sight, that we could shovel first, you know, and that would also benefit all the, those else. who can walk up the ramp. Okay. Thank you all for coming